Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm delighted to be back here with Mark <laughs> and Jasper. Hi, hi, Barney. Hi. Yeah, we've got the old power trio back together. For <laughs> the boys are one back more in town. Show. The, bo- the boys are back in town. <laughs> I'm back in town, certainly, and it's, it's good to be back. Bronze. Bronze. <laughs> Bronzed and godlike. Yeah, like a Greek god from, from Patmos. We will, as ever, be talking about everything that's new on Roxback Pages, including the week's new audio interview, which is with Madonna from 2002. We'll also be talking a bit about Miranda. Amanda Ward, who was Hit Parader magazine's Girl About Town in Swinging Pop London. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But first, <laughs> but first, it is 40 years since Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight changed the course of popular music. And we have three pieces roughly in that time frame that, that talk about... This extraordinary record that that changed everything, didn't it, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I I can still remember exactly where I was when I first heard it. My rather third-rate pub rock band were going to drive into Hungerford to play a gig, and this this tune came on, and we all looked at each other and said, but this is Sheik's Good Times. What are these blokes doing talking over (laughs) it? They've stolen the music off Sheik. No, but we didn't... We just didn't... It didn't didn't make any sense to us whatsoever. Having said that, and given all the sort of stuff that surrounds them, their theft of Sheik... Their theft of the lyrics, Grandmaster Kaz's Mm. words, check it out, I'm the C-A-S-A, the N-O-V-A, the rest is F-L-Y. Kaz and Overfly being... Grandmaster Kaz's then stage name. They yeah. couldn't be bothered to change the lyrics to no. disguise their no. provenance. Given all that, I still think it's fantastic. I know they were a fake band. Uh, yeah. And I know it's kind of fake hip-hop in inverted commas. Mm. But it's a really great tune. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the three pieces, funnily enough, by Pete Wingfield. Yes, Pete, 18 with a bullet. Indeed. Wingfield wrote after going to see them play at the venue the, the three guys were flown over to london to to perform and he talks about an experience which is sort of eerily close to my own experience he and in, in early october 79 he'd been in new york and he had had the same experience you had yeah. mark and i actually had a month before that in new york in downstairs records on west 43rd street mm-hmm. i went in there looking looking for disco records and the guy played rapper's delight and i suppose there were like i don't know eight guys in this basement store and and it was sort of your your, the same reaction it was like what the hell man (laughs) (laughs) what is this everyone kind of laughing almost kind of laughing but enjoying it and i suppose like like many people everyone sort of thought oh it's just it's a kind of yeah. one-hit wonder. It's a fad. I mean, at that point, it wasn't even any anywhere close to charting. The thing is that a lot of people think it's an inherently inauthentic because they were not a genuine trio of MCs. They hadn't been doing the Bronx and so on and so forth. But actually, in many respects, it's deeply authentic because the fact is it was tunes like Good Times that the MCs were MCing over in the Bronx. So I think it's a pretty good snapshot of what hip-hop was like at the time. Just yeah. when did you first when did I hear first it? <laughs> Oh, you know, yes. probably about 
I don't know, in late, the womb. late October <laughs> yeah. 1979. Um, I don't know when I first heard it, but I do think it's a great tune and it is sort of remarkable. I mean, it's not in fact a sample. It's they they got a live band in yeah. to play it, which is interesting in the sense that I mean, because it was pre-samplers, it was yeah, yeah. sampling, which of course became such a mainstay of hip hop. <laughs> before there was such a thing as a sampler. Absolutely. They got a band to play it for the whole 15 yeah. minutes of the cut. And I think that's interesting in and of itself, that it's sort of, it is the root of that sampling. It's also the beginning. Give it, well, it's not, technically, it's not really the first rap record ever released. No. no Fatback Bang's King Tim the Third personality yeah, that's interesting. drop, which was, I think, March, was of the same, March of the same year. But that was uh, a B-side. Be- no, yeah. Then they flipped it, and it went to 25 in oh, the really? Billboard R&B charts. Interesting. So, you know... But it also established immediately the primacy of the MC over the DJ um, yes. in terms of hip-hop as a recorded music form rather than yep. a sort of live, live music form. There are some great examples of turntablism, Grandmaster Flashes, what's the name of that great record where he just... It's basically Adventures hip, in Adventures the Wheels of Steel, Steel yeah. which is fantastic. But it was inevitable the moment people started recording hip-hop that the rapper would become the prime... And item. it's interesting because one of the pieces we've got is the David Sigerson review of the of the track, which mentions King Tim three, which by mentions the way. King yeah. Tim three, mm-hmm. but also talks about David Sigerson is sort of oh I wonder when we'll see the first real rap record in the sense that we'll get the MC the turntablist and the audience because he's mm-hmm. talking about it from a live perspective yes and he's he doesn't think that it's conveying the same energy on record that it is when you go to a sure. to a to a gig and I don't know that we've had very many rap records that feature the audience as part of that experience. No, it's not, it's, it's, it didn't really happen. Didn't really it come didn't off. really happen. No. But I, I think in terms of the featuring of the, the turntablist, I'd say actually Public Enemy got closest. Even though they're using samples, it's the way on Fight the Power and those tunes, the way they used uh, samples or Hank Shockley yep. scratching actually gives you some essence of the, the energy that would come off the turntablist in sort of circumstances mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. When I worked on the hip-hop show Yes, Yes, Y'all at the hospital in 2003, mm. and I basically, one of my jobs was looking after Busy B, who was one of the very first sort of generation of, uh, of MCs, looking after him for a week because he was going to be opening the show along with Grand Wizard Theodore. Looking after him involved basically buying an eighth of skunk weed a day he gave me my first blunt, possibly most disgusting. I'm shocked, ever. Mark, <laughs> that you knew where to purchase. <laughs> but he sold, he sold me, of course, they're going to give them to me, he sold me a bunch of CDs, which were original. What they'd do is they'd record their sets on a ghetto blaster. And so mm. these are from like 75, 76, yeah. 77, yeah, yeah, yeah. in places like the Harlem World and the other clubs. And it's, it's, it's fabulous, because you can hear the audience all whooping and hollering, the MC's doing stuff, but then the MC will drop out for a few minutes while the turntablist does his stuff and all yeah. that. And it's an extraordinary to and fro. Uh, and it's, you know, it is a shame that there aren't really kind of great recordings. Of that and it's stuff. interesting that it did take a few years from then to any kind of rap finding its way on, onto a record, right? I mean, like, because yeah, rapping was happening for... They didn't. They didn't regard it as something that you'd ever want to record. They didn't regard no, it as anything sure. you want to record. And uh, again, when I was doing that show, one of the things I was reading about it was a lot of these guys, the original first generation MCs, heard Rappers Delight and thought, "What the hell are they doing? Putting this out as a record?" Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, they were absolutely baffled by that as a process. And you is that because it was so caught up in the live energy of it, or it was, was it a way of putting on a party? 
Yeah, yeah that's right, essentially exactly. it was functional. Block yeah. me street, block yeah. music, yeah. Po- block party whether, music. Whether it's a park jam or whether it's yeah. in the police athletic league gymnasium. No one thought it would become a recording. No one thought it was going to become a recording. Right. I mean, you mentioned Davitt's piece. It's interesting. Davitt was melody makers like Man in New York, so he was writing yeah. about all, the whole dance scene about disco records. And he in this piece, fifteenth December nineteen seventy nine. So like two three months after the the very first like 12 inches yeah, released yeah. by by sugar hill he doesn't even mention the terms rap or hip-hop in in this piece you know so interesting to look at the very first use in the media of the term hip-hop yeah and and rap, obviously rap was a term that was used a, going back to like joe tex uh, well, no, way before rap was a term which yeah. goes back to the 1920s the 20s right you exactly. know I mean, people rapped it's conversation. We yeah. were rapping with one another. He was rapping. Yes. Know? Hip-hop is actually taken from the kind of stuff that MCs would spout. A hip, a hop, a hibbity, hop, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yes. Don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, yeah. don't stop. You know, all of that sort of thing. Interestingly, I mean, 79, Rapper's Delight comes out. And yes, there are the occasional kind of like one-off hip-hop hits after the next following two years. It's really run DMC, mm. who are the people who blow it. Wide okay. open. They suddenly start selling large numbers of records to white people and mm. other things. Yeah. You know, and start having big hits. There was that record by Man Parish called yep. Hip Hop Don't Stop. Don't I mean, stop. Yeah. yeah, which was an electro hop kind of well, record. I remember uh, buying well, that. And, and electro hip hop my... was uh, an, another subdivision altogether. Mm. And mm. that was very much Africa Bambata, Soul yeah. Sonic Force, that sort of territory. Yeah. And was a studio creation. My friend Jay, of course, engineered Planet Rock and things like that. And that was like, you know, you've got your DMX drum machine, mm-hmm. you've got a synthesizer, you haven't got a turntable anywhere, you have yes. anything that sort of stuff. Yes. And it's a very interesting sort of sideline in and of itself. But going back to what I was saying earlier, the curiosity about Rapper's Delight is that, as fake as they may have been, I think it just genuinely does kind of sound like what you'd have heard. I mean, they were basically just kids that were on the hip-hop scene. Yeah. They could do it to a certain extent, and they got picked out by Sylvia Robinson. I I think what's quite impressive is that actually the rapping's quite persuasive on it. They don't sound like they've got no sense of groove or anything like that. No, it's it's pretty good. I I mean, the lyrics themselves are sort of... Grandmaster Kaz's lyrics. Yeah, (laughs) Grandmaster... Not all of them, some of them were... I was kind of hoping you might introduce yourself as, hi, I'm Wonder Mark. But, <laughs> we did miss a trick, didn't we? But, we, um, did. You know, we did. We'll but, dub that in later. The third, <laughs> the third piece, by, 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 which we haven't mentioned, Paul Saxton from January 1980, uh, Record Mirror. He gets on the phone to Master G, or Guy O'Brien, as he outs him. The Sugar Hill Gang are, are performing in Shreveport, Louisiana, mm-hmm. as sport act to P-Funk. Yeah. And he comes to the phone, and so he sort of just tells the story, d- describes the three of them as mobile DJs. Mike, Hank, and myself are all mobile DJs. One day we were all up at Sylvia Robertson's house, and we all rapped for a while. Sylvia liked it. Yes, you know, that's, that's, that's the, bur- the it, birth that's of true. rap. Actually, it's first of all, Sylvia's son knew Hank, who worked yeah. in a pizza parlor, and that's where, and it was Hank who had Grandmaster Kaz's cassette tape of one okay. of the sets, which is what that sort of it really started out from. But mobile DJs is interesting as well, because what's forgotten is there was a tradition of rapping mobile DJs even pre-what we regard as hip-hop, yeah. but not so much in the Bronx, but in Brooklyn. Okay. And these people write for disco DJs, effectively, yeah. yes. but playing mobile DJs, and they would, as did radio DJs at the time, they would rap over the top of the records. You know, it was all in the water, it was all mm. in the air, and it was mm. a question of 
who was going to bottle that lightning, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Right. They, they just given what we know about Sugar Hill's business practices, <laughs> <laughs> there's Paul asks Guy O'Brien, aka Master G, who wrote the music for the new album, and there's a sort of pause. And Master G goes, well, again, you'd have to ask the management side about that. And he says, well, well what about this, the sheet, the, the bass line? I mean, and he goes, Edwards and Rogers, uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask the management <laughs> side. And the management that. side, of course, Sylvia Robinson had a long track for her on Lyra and B. She had hits with Mickey Baker, Mickey and Sylvia. Yeah. Then she had her own hit with Pillow Talk about her 10 years after that. She was an, an R&B veteran who became notorious for some of her dubious practices. Sugar Hill Records itself was, I think, financed by Morris Levy, the well-known mob-connected yep. record company hustler. Their subsequent release, White Lines, Grandmaster Flash, well, it wasn't Grandmaster Flash, it was Melly Mel and the Furious Five, to all intents and purposes, ripped off Liquid Liquid's tune. Liquid Liquid, like Chic, then chose to sue after a bit of a pause, at which point Sugar Hill went bankrupt in inverted commas, closed their doors, and their studio burned down. Funny that. Funny, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Face. Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while I think of you. One of the funny things about reading all three of these pieces is the sort of presumption that it's, it's, it's a fad, it's just yeah, going to die out. Yeah, and it's a flash in the pan. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. I got that sense. With yeah. the bubble liable to burst at any minute, you know, Joe and Sylvia Robinson will doubtless be on to the, the next kind of fad. Yeah. And I mean, it's extraordinary uh, when, uh, when, we, when we all know of course, what's happening. And, you know, even, as I was saying, Run DMC had these big hits, particularly Walk This Way with the Aerosmith yeah. sample. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but they still felt one-offish. I think it's probably LL Cool J's ascension to the throne in sort of eighty six, eighty seven. He became so big, mm. Um, mm. and by this time, everyone's looking around saying, "Look, this is here to stay. This mm. is absolutely here to stay." Yes. We were talking about GoGo the other week, and there's a genuine sense maybe GoGo would be a competitor with yes. this emerging hip hop. Yes, stuff. forget about it. Yeah. Hip hop was the future. It is remarkable how hip hop really has become the dominant form of popular music now. Substantially, yeah, I'd completely agree. Mm. And again, we were talking with David Stubbs about Afrofuturism, and hip hop was very much part of Afrofuturism. Ironically, given the fact that the early hip hop people were hated disco, inverted commas, and actually wanted to return to an older black music form, which is funk. Uh, and so funk was the basic, from 74, 75, 76, 77, it was funk tunes that they were playing to rap, to over. rap over. Mm. But from then on, you take us through Public Enemy and so on and so forth, right up to, well, the present day pretty much. Mm. And, and yeah. some of the most exciting music coming out of anywhere yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Sugar Hill Gang, we salute you. Going back over a decade before that, the featured writer this week is one Miranda Ward, who's a number of female writers from that decade. As you know, Mark, the, oh, yeah. they sort of, there were quite a few of them, weren't there? Yes. From Penny Valentine to June Harris yeah. to Dawn Jones. I'd actually say that in some areas, yeah. particularly in American pop music, women were predominant. Yes. There was certainly 
as many of them as men journalists. Well, it's very interesting. So there's two pieces that just briefly we're going to touch on. And one of them features Miranda, who we met early yeah. in the Rocks Back Pages yeah, story. We went, we we went to her cottage in, in Stroud. Stroud. Stroud, Gloucestershire. And no one will be offended by that. As oh, God, OK, all right. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll take that out. It's, it's becoming fine, a sort of meta doesn't edit. Doesn't matter. Offending people in the Shires, isn't that what people that in London okay? are supposed it's to do? It's what we're supposed to do, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll try and get some more of that that in later. So, yeah, we did meet Miranda, and we haven't got many pieces because it's quite hard to find her stuff, but she was, for a period, like, hit parader's London correspondent. Yes, their girl in swinging London. Exactly, and it's really interesting that... So she goes to see a taping of Ready, Steady, Go, where Otis Redding is performing, along with Eric Burden and others, and they really want to meet her, like Otis and his manager, Phil Walden, of course, who became the manager of the the Allman Brothers band. They're both like, they really want to meet Hit Parader's girl yeah. in London. And yeah. they smuggle her into the, into the recording yeah. of Ready, Steady, Go. And then they invite her to come along to a club outside London. And then she sees them at Tiles yeah. on Oxford Street a couple she of days later. She was a later. proper scenester. Yeah. She was an absolute proper scenester. It's not only scenes to piece. Yeah. It's all about just hanging out, getting into yeah. the recording, going to the gig, and then meeting Tom Jones afterwards, uh, who's raving us, about Otis. When we had the marvellous Dawn James as a guest, you know, all part of this very small world, yeah. you know. Hit Parade was a really interesting rag, which is, I think, rather forgotten. It was a pop magazine, recognisably a bit like smash hits, and you know, print lyrics and so on. But actually, it had some really good writers writing mm. about really good stuff. Mm. It loved black music in a way that most white American rags didn't. Yeah. Valerie Wilmer wrote for it. She was another London correspondent, you know, writing about pop music, even mm. though Valerie Wilmer's subsequently much better known as jazz and out there jazz in particular, sort of writer mm. and photographer. Mm. It was terrific hit parader. And we've got quite a lot of hit parader stuff on Rock's Back Pages. Well worth looking at. Well, so Miranda Ward, you know, rather like Dawn James and others, sort of was ubiquitous on the scene. And yep. the other piece I've just briefly mentioned is not actually an article as such, but a transcription of a television interview she did with George Harrison when they are about to start work on Magical Mystery Tour. Oh. And so she just sits down with, with George in September 67 and she says, you know, it's really important that this new film is an advance on kind of help and hard days nights. It's got to it's got to illustrate the difference between help and Sergeant Pepper. So it's got to be the yeah. implication, it's got to be the kind of filmic equivalent of, of Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. yeah. That's just a nice little conversation I think you can find on, on YouTube, actually. Uh, George says something, you know, quintessentially George, which is I've never really known what it's been like as the Beatles. The Beatles are something abstract as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try to see us as the Beatles, but I can't. It's something other people see us. Sure. I can't really, the reality of being a Beatle is mm. too abstract then. I mean, George Harrison's quite interesting in that period. I mean, he was starting to really stretch his wings as a songwriter mm. for the band. Yeah. With limited success. And yeah. also with limited endorsement by John McCartney. You know, yeah, like, well, 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 quite. They weren't that keen. Um, no. Famously, in fact, was, I was thinking of talking about it, about the stuff we're posting. But we're posting an article from KRLA Beat from 67 when he basically took a holiday, went to the West Coast, started in Los Angeles, and then went, visited the Haight-Ashbury, hated it. Was at Monterey? Was at Monterey. Hated the Haight-Ashbury. Mm. Um, all these people coming up to him and sort of like wanting to give him acid and so on and yeah. so forth. He was also in a process of essentially converting to Hinduism, to all intents and 
purposes. People who met George around that time found him quite interesting, like older than his years. There was something very different about him. He, yes. The way in which he conducted himself, when which he spoke about who he was, who the Beatles were. And he talks in this piece about how they don't want to tour anymore because it had just become this treadmill and so on and so forth, and that they had other much more interesting stuff to do. And to Miranda, he talks, it's it's some of the earlier stuff he says about Brahmanism and Ravi Shankar. Yeah. He says, you know, all the groovy people are Brahmins, like the scientists, religious people and so forth. And I'd like to become this myself. And then it's just this sort of typical, I suppose, like 1967 stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get a car and a telly and a house, your life's still empty because it's still all, all on this gross level. And what we need isn't material, it's spiritual. Yeah. We need some sort of other form of peace and happiness. Well, it's you know. It's, and to be fair, he's remained consistent to that. He did remain his consistent. Life, he did Though remain. He did consistent. live in fairly lavish circumstances. Yes, in giant park, Berkshire. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it was. it's sort of fairly yeah. easy to, to swear off material things if when you've got when you've got them all already. Well. <laughs> um, we will, of course, be talking a lot more about the Beatles next week when we have a sort of Abbey Road special. Um, do we? So we certainly do. With Matt Snow coming, I'm looking forward to that very much. Through the bathroom window. He will be through the bathroom window in a white suit, I promise. <laughs> Anyway, I think that's sort of that's us done with the kind of free pieces this week. And I'm going to now ask Mark to tell us about the week's audio interview. Yeah, this is uh, Stephen Daly in 2002 interviewing Madonna. The Madonna. The Madonna. Not just lady, a lady. A lady. Madonna. Madonna. That's the right. Madonna. The Madonna. This is for Vanity Fair October 2002 issue, which is to mark the release of what is in some circles regarded as the worst film ever made. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Sw- uh, swept, swept Away. Swept away yes. directed it by wasn't her. official at this point, <laughs> was it? It makes listening to the interview all the more excruciating. Made by her then-husband, Guy Ritchie. This is very much about... The whole interview is very much about her as an actress and so on and so forth, in which she barely mentions her musical activities in it. And it's enjoyable because she does good interviews. You know, Madonna's a very kind of engaging interview subject. She talks about... Initially, she talks about things like, I love foreign films when she's in college. Instantly, her husband is not interested in these at all. She thinks she forces him to watch Fellini movies, and he's just really? kind of like... he doesn't care. He, can't, he cannot stand it, which I think tells you all you need to know about Guy Ritchie. But she talks quite extensively about London because she's, at this point, was actually pretty much living half her life in London. And, the and they had a, a country pile as well. well that, she rode late, horses. I think that was later. Here she's, she's living near Paddington. Uh, marble marble Arch. She says yeah. she can see the Marble Arch from her, her, home, her home. So you um, can work it out, really. But, but she, one thing she talks about says she, how much she dislikes council states. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, for God's sake. Hey, yes, it was, it, well, but I'd say one of the best things about London the fact it's spikes we can't see. Yeah, things. absolutely. You know, you know, she talks about the movie. In fact, let's listen to a clip. This is her talking about Swept Away. The original was very, very racy. And, and that really, one line? At the yeah. Sub- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sodomize me. Yes. Okay. Well, it's not in our movie because the thing is, she we didn't think she really underwent a transformation in the old film. We mm. felt we felt like really the biggest thing she did was 
she just it was more about sex and lust and you know them desiring each other physically yeah. and we wanted to move away from that and actually have something truly emotional happen to her right. not just basing it on the physical thing in addition I mean it just didn't seem like there was any point to us rolling around and making out and staying naked in the movie I mean I didn't really mind that the guy didn't want to do it to tell you the truth okay. I don't, I'm not particularly fond of kissing strange men right She talks about her other stuff. She's in a stage play called Up for Grabs. She has a small part in a Bond movie. Yeah, she's in Die Another Day, is it? Uh, yes, Die Another Day, yes. That's, that's... She, she sang the theme for that as yes, well. Yes, correct. Indeed. We'll play a clip later on which talks about the criticism she gets of being an actress. She's clearly obsessed by the English class system, so there's quite a chunk in this where she talks about the difference between the US and UK class systems. Mm. Interestingly, Stephen Daly raises this because Stephen Daly is Scottish, but he's lived in America mm. for a long time. And when Americans refer to the middle class, they're referring to quite a different thing from mm. what the British refer to mm. as middle class. Yes. Her love of UK kitchen sink dramas. I love the idea of her watching the L-shaped room. And then she talks about religion. I mean, initially, she starts talking about Catholicism, what it meant to her as a young child. Interestingly, she was growing up at a time when it was at Vatican II or whenever it was when they got rid of the Latin mass and how she preferred the Latin mass because it was more mysterious and interesting. And then she goes into her Kabbalah bullshit um, at, at some length. There's some water she gets from Canada, which is sort of, I don't know, just, you know, mind-scrambling stuff. But it's, 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 it's good fun, and she's always worth listening to. Yeah, I mean, I, I have very mixed feelings about Madonna. It's interesting to me to hear her speaking at length to Stephen. Having interviewed her very early in her story, just how much had changed by this point? Mm -hmm. Maybe not that much, you know. When I met this sort of young girl who came to London in about 1983... It's when she did the very, very first show at Camden yeah, Palace. Yeah, Camden Palace. And everybody had just been released on 12... Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a sort of club hit, but no one really could have foreseen that this one was going to be the dominant female superstar of the coming sure. decade, you know. Well, probably two or three decades. She she still is one of the biggest stars in the world. She's just starting her new tour. The Madam X tour mm -hmm. has just started in America. Interesting, you talk about that time. My band were recording demos. We were in the studio in Shepherd's Bush, and this guy from that band, Freeze, came down. This is, would be 83. Mm. And he said, have you have you heard about Madonna? We all said, we never, yeah, she hadn't yeah. heard about her. And... He said, she is the real thing. She's going to be huge. Right. He was absolutely, absolutely <laughs> raving about her. I mean, she's fascinating. I don't, I, I'm not moved by much of what she's done. One of the things I felt about this interview was that I, I'm impressed by, there's something quite cold about her mm -hmm. and sort of clipped and everything is, is very controlled. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt she's a sort of huge control freak. But I sort of found myself thinking, well, that's how you survive as yeah. a superstar at that level. She has managed to stay sane. Yeah, but which, which you know, Michael Jackson didn't. Okay, Bruce Springsteen did. Prince didn't. That's right. A lot of people get to that level yeah. of fame, and there is no higher level of fame. Yeah. Really, do implode because yeah. it's just too much. She makes. She talks about her treatment in the newspapers, but yes. she keeps reiterating she doesn't read them, and yeah. I, I, I believe that actually. I think that sounds very sensible. You know, just do not read what um, these people are writing about. If you, you don't read about it, it washes. It can wash. You know, let yeah. it wash over. Although you. I mean, she is sort of fairly earnest about 
defending herself as an actor. You know, she she wants to be taken more seriously yeah. than she is. So interestingly, her acting more or less stopped immediately after. I mean, she was she got so widely panned for. She's her a rather wooden. Apart from that very first film, Desperately Seeking she's Susan, good in she was great, and because she was just playing herself. Yeah. When she started to take the thing a bit more seriously, she just she's just wooden. She's not a great uh, actor, and, and I, it's partly because I think what the person you hear in this interview is not an emotionally very open yeah, person, yeah. and I think she lacks that that element of vulnerability that you need to have to be a great. Actor. I also think that she's brutally professional enough to recognise her own limitations actually. Yeah. I think, you know having done a stage well play and had done this and done that, she probably thought, you know what, I'm actually not very good at this and I should concentrate on what I am good at. But anyway, she is riveting. Do I love her stuff? I, this is a kind of, we spoke about it a few months ago on this, but mm. it was sort of a window of her stuff on Papa Don't Preach, yeah. that sort of period when Like a Virgin, yeah. which I think are terrific records. But There's probably we, 20 great tracks yeah. that she's on. I mean, I think we, we well, can actually, easily put together a playlist well, of great I'd just great buy the Immaculate tracks. Collection. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, stuff since, I mean, I yeah. think, like, Don't Tell Me is pretty great. There, there, sure. there are, I mean, there she's are, managed also, interestingly, to remain influential across yeah. the whole, you know, new musicians coming up. I mean, later on, I, I want to talk about Christine and the Queens. The interview, she actually talks also about Madonna as an influence, which is remarkable because it's that's a new band that's mm. still seeing, taking things from Madonna. Yeah, yeah and, you, and you would accept that. And, I mean, look, I think one of the problems is, I think she is someone who has picked up on on lots of new trends she's she's a bit of a vulture in yeah. that way but she does sometimes turn that into interesting music interesting spectacle her live shows have been extraordinary is she a genuine original probably not it doesn't mean that she hasn't been massively influential it doesn't surprise me to learn mm, that, that sure. chris or christine has been influenced by her i love the way the interview ends funnily enough i mean i get what you're saying about the cabal and all that but actually there's a moment of real humility at the end mm -hmm. right at the very end and she says you know it has enabled me to see the bigger picture you know my life used to be very small picture mm. and it was just all about me i was totally selfish i never thought about anybody else and i think more than a few people from madonna's early years we, we probably can go with that but i mean you know i don't warm to her but i do admire her. yes actually yeah, same same uh, so i yeah. think there is a lot of interesting stuff in there however atrocious swept away was and i think it's i watched the trailer for it last night it looks appalling might just yeah. watch it in my b movie club <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that's new for subscribers i mean we've not had a madonna interview before audio interview yeah. so it's nice to have her in our kind of yeah. gallery yeah tell us what else is new for subscribers yeah, there's, mark there's all kinds of interesting bits and pieces i'm starting off with carl dallas interviewing arlo guthrie melody maker in 1966 mm. now arlo guthrie obviously woody guthrie's son carl dallas was the folk correspondent for, for Melody yeah. Maker. And he obviously really likes what Arlo's doing. But Arlo Guthrie, whilst he's Woody Guthrie's son, is at pains to make sure that everyone understands he's not just Woody's son. Of course. And more than that, he's not just a folk singer, that actually, in some ways, he was like a prototype singer-songwriter. He was. And uh, he says, I've got a lot of my own songs I want people to hear. There's one called Alice's Restaurant that I like very much. And it was really nice because yeah. then that, the film Alice's Restaurant was, what, 69, I'd guess? Was, I think so. It was a pretty big countercultural movie hit. Absolutely. Uh, 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 and you know, he obviously loves his father. His father recently died. I think he died in 67. Yeah, so he would still be alive at this point. still be alive point. at this point, but was suffering from... Huntington's. Huntington's, yeah, 
Huntington's disease, which Arlo must be worried because it's a hereditary condition. Mm. But he comes up very nicely in this. He's, he's young. He's That was a time when folk musicians, Paul Simon was another one, Bob Dylan was one, who would come over to London and play the folk clubs way before they made yeah. any sort of reputation because they could do it. Yeah. You know, and there was a big folk scene in London. So it's great stuff. Second is Geoffrey Cannon. It's a short piece on Island Records setting up their base in Basing Street. This is from The Guardian, November 69. I, I live very close to Basing Street. It's Nothing Hill, isn't it? Nothing Hill, it's just off Portobello. And I went to school near there at this time and remember it vividly. And he, he really gets this thing of what's special about Basing Street is the local vigour. The area is full of West Indians, Irish, old Londoners, hippies and visitors, all falling over each other harmoniously. Portobello Road is only 50 yards away, not the end that sells knick-knacks at staggering prices, but the end which sells bananas at nine pence a pound. And even when I moved yeah. into where I live now, which is about a 15-minute walk from Basing Street, 25 years ago, it was still like that. Yeah. It's been hugely gentrified since, though it's still very black, mm. and that end of Portobello is still fruit stalls and vegetable stalls. And yeah, that. bananas not at nine pence not a pound. Not at nine pence but, a pound. But, but not far off. I, I, yeah. I, he, he catches it very nicely. I mean, for listeners who have never been there, the north end of Portobello Road was England's Haight-Ashbury slash Greenwich mm. Village. It was where Friends magazine was based. Oz magazine was based very close in Princedale Road. It was the centre of hippie London. Yeah. And, and no coincidence, really, that Chris Blackwell chose to open the building there uh, rather than in sort of, you know, old Bond Street well, or something. Absolutely. And also because Blackwell's background in reggae and Jamaica meant that he, being in an area which was substantially black in those days, was a very comfortable experience for him. I mean, subsequently, Ireland moved to St Peter's Square and Hammersmith, yeah. but they kept Basing Street Studio, yeah. then sold it to Trevor Horn, Trevor Horn who became Psalm West. Psalm West, yeah. Uh, and just recently it's been turned into a housing development but there is the uh, remains of the studio in the basement still operating. Is that right? But the, the, the great old studio is, is long gone, which is just the way it goes. Yeah, you know? and I mean, that was used by all sorts of artists, not just yeah. the island artists. Absolutely. Right? I mean, part, parts of Led Zeppelin three well, were a lot, there, lots, for example, lots of immigrants. So. Uh, one street along is All Saints Road, where the Mangrove restaurant was and so on and so forth. You know, it, 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 it's still a pretty funky part of town, even though it's full of extraordinarily rich people. Mm. Moving on, again, 69. I have to, every time we get a John Mendelssohn live review, I have to sort of <laughs> highlight it, because they're just so hilarious. This, this is him reviewing Humble Pine Grand Funk Royal Road at the Whiskey I Go Go, December 69. England's Humble Pie opens at the Whiskey Monday evening to an audience including most of Hollywood's most garish groupies. To the considerable disappointment of those who had come to listen to their music rather than behold their famous faces, the performers proved victims of a malady that seems to afflict nearly every British group on its first American tour. To wit, the group seems very nearly obsessed with living down the talentless teeny bop image it wrongly suspects American audiences have of it, owing to the fact that it comprises former members of the Herd and Small Faces, two of England's biggest teen attractions. Towards this end, it attempts to dazzle the listener with its instrumental proficiency, which it displays in doses of more than 20 minutes. It succeeds only in boring one senseless. Now, <laughs> Which is, you know, oddly, two years later, I saw that lineup at Free Concert in the Park, but their positions were reversed. Grand Funk were the headliners and Humble Pie was support. Humble Pie were brilliant. 
Well, they, they were, were far better than Grand Funk Railroad. Grand Funk were any just day of the week. Ghastly. Perhaps we should have a sort of Mendo moment in every podcast. <laughs> you know, just a withering paragraph. You mean I can go back to his old article? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's the Mendo moment. I find find gems. But I mean, humble pie. They, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, the, what you just read out reminds me because they did they did come out of they were yeah pop bands teen pop bands yeah. and yet of all of the sort of kind of supergroups that came out in the late 60s Humble Pie really were they were heavy yeah, I mean they, they were pretty heavy they, they, and pretty they, funky and quite black I mean Marriott was an extraordinary singer he, he actually does mention in his piece with some approval their version of a Ray Charles song Steve Marriott was passionate about Ray Charles like a lot of English mm. like Joe Cocker and a lot of other singers he kind of modelled himself in Ray Charles to mm. some extent mm. when I saw them again it was still the Frampton version of the band before Frampton left I'd say Humble Pie became heavier in inverted commas after Frampton left mm. but they was they were pretty full-on rock and roll band and actually really very very decent And in that sort of vein of kind of heavy black influence rock, I see the next you, you, yeah. you're featuring a, a review of a live album by Free. Yeah, this is this is Roy Carr reviewing Free Live 1971. One of my favourite albums, I've got to say. I mean, I love Free, but if you want to listen to Free, mm. listen to Free Live. Um, and his, the subhead is Free's last album, their finest ever? Question mm. mark. I think it's absolutely is their finest record. It wasn't their last album that happened. Basically... Andy Fraser was basically pushed out and they mm. got a new another bass player. The Japanese guy. Yes. Staggered on for another year or two and then sort of fell to pieces. They were an odd band because there was a core there's a kind of core of them who were a genuine band and the rest were bits were kind of bolted on. Alexis Corner had a lot to do with that. He yes. introduced Andy Fraser to them and so on. Paul Rogers cock rock legend, <laughs> but 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 also a really kind of great kind of again in Talking about Steve Marriott, a great white English R&B impersonator. Yeah, fabulous singer. Yeah. Fraser, an extraordinary bass player. Oh, and Simon Kirk, the drummer, and Fraser, were the, it was like the sort of English rhythm section which looked stacked and thought, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Kirk is very much an out of Al Jackson mm-hmm. sort of drummer. And, yeah, Fraser's bass And the player. tragic Paul Kossoff yeah. and sort of... Blazing Les Paul yeah, lead guitar. Absolutely. Um, One thing that's interesting to me is this idea of a live album being a band's finest ever. Because the live album has really sort of dropped off. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, nowadays, if, if a band releases a live album, it's pretty much a cash grab. It's like, how can we make more money out of this tour yeah. that we've just done? I, I, th- I like, think I, it's I, a very interesting I've point. Noticed, I've not the heard death a live, of the album. live album. Yeah. yeah. That well, I, I think one reason was remarkable. I think one reason last, is no. because bands live try and reproduce their records as accurately as possible now. Mm. You essentially get... This, well, I'm sure there are exceptions, but you essentially get almost note for note what you hear in the records. Back in those days, live was when they would stretch out and do something yeah, different. Do a 20-minute version you know, of, yeah. of a hit single, um, you know. They weren't working with click tracks. So many bands these yeah. days work with click tracks. Yeah. It's a much looser, more spontaneous event. Interesting, just I was thinking about it, the, the, the live album that I have listened to from recent times is a Tim Minchin album, which is a co- kind of comedy music album, and then uh-huh. it sort of makes sense to have the audience. Laughing. He, he does do different does do different things. He yeah. does stuff with an orchestra, which is not... In it, sort of, he hasn't necessarily 
done it in the studio on record. Yeah. It, is, mm. it is a more of a live yeah. show that's been recorded. But um, I think that's slightly did, different from a. Did you always like? Do you like album. live albums? Some people hate them. Not not sort of in principle. I didn't like them because they were live albums, and certainly, I'd say half the live albums I bought at least I didn't think were good at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's part of whether they were recorded well, whether the engineer was good. I mean, but I, I would say there are you know, everything from Rock of Ages by the band to mm-hmm. you know even Happy Trails by Quicksilver yes. Messenger Service. I mean, they are still some of my favourite well, albums. Uh, I, I, as a Grateful Dead fan, I'd say their very Life best Dead. stuff is like yeah, is, yeah. is, is live. Europe seventy two. I mean, so yeah, a band like the Dead made more sense in a sense recording yes. live, didn't they? Weren't a studio, they weren't a studio band. band at you all. Know. I remember buying a Queen live album and being on the one hand electrified by Freddie Mercury, yeah. but on the other hand, just a whole lot of flab that that didn't come yeah. across without the stage production just hearing it didn't, sure. didn't quite add up I yeah. mean there's a terrific bit where you know Freddie the thing that he does with the crowd hey you know that, that yeah. whole show But other than that, I found it not that interesting. I, I've always had a certain fondness for live albums. I've always liked Get Your Eyes Out by the Stones. Well, of course, though, James Brown liked the Apollo. Well, 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 I mean, it, that that is inseparable yes. from the live experience. Yes, so that's, I think that's and, that's ma- and utterly magnificent. I mean, you know, there are a curious item. I, I know some people who just, on principle, hate. So, all what was the live. last great live album? Do we think? I mean, can we think of one? Well, I one? wouldn't know. No, no. I mean, no, um, I mean it's a really that, interesting point. The other times when live albums is sort of when people whose sound is most based on live looping will often put out a live album mm. and that can be interesting because of that sort of it is being performed generated yeah. and performed at the same time you know time. I think but something like Lizzo's performance at Glastonbury which of course we saw on television yeah. would probably make a pretty good probably, live album yeah mm. I imagine um, so you know you've got the crowd who are responding like mad to her she's responding to the crowd she's doing something that she wouldn't have necessarily done in the studio yeah. and it's even though it's all programmed the music's almost certainly programmed to sure. the hilt it has got something extra because of the presence of the audience. So um, there you go, Lizzo. Just a, just a tip yeah. from us here. <laughs> yeah, if you're gratis. listening. Yeah. Right, moving on to 1978, the wonderful Brian Case, one of my favourite writers, interviewing kind of R&B slash jazz British veteran Dick Hexel Smith. First of all, Dick Hexel Smith is a really bright guy. He apparently, it basically takes place in Hexel Smith's flat, which is like near King's Cross, and it's the walls of like books about Marx and stuff. <laughs> and I think a drink or two is consumed. He's asked You wouldn't about, know anything about that, though. No, no idea. Uh, he's asked about, sort of, about, you know, white musicians playing black music. He says, the argument is not, do you feel guilty? But, objectively, if you're ripping off the blacks, then you should stop playing. Mm. It's a very good interview, a very articulate musician. He talks also very interestingly. I mean, he, this is a guy who played with Lexus Corners Blues Incorporated. He played with Graham Bond. He played Coliseum. He was the sax player of the British blues boom. Talking tense about his Very articulate, very interesting guy. Really worth reading. Moving on to 84, Tio Masira, Miles Davis's long-standing producer, interviewed by Max Jones. Max writing in the war yeah, in I 1984. Know, I know. It's, it says the Max Jones collection is printed on the side of it. So, it, okay. it, you know, he's like, he's putting himself out as Max Jones, the brand. He's branding um, himself. Uh, and it's, 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 it's very sad. I mean, the thing is that 
Miles resented Tio Masiro claiming credit for the records that he worked on, whilst Tio Masiro deserves quite a lot of credit, absolutely. especially for the In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew yeah, stuff, absolutely. which were edits, edit, 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 and he did. Which would have been totally yeah, sprawling and meaningless. Um, and uh, he, he says, I thought Miles would have called me when I was ill in April and May last year, but no, we used to be pretty close. Mm. And, you know, it's... it's it is sad. I mean, I think it's dangerous for producers to claim too much credit, full stop. I mean, I think the same about Mark Ronson with Amy Winehouse. Absolutely. Even though I think Mark Ronson did a lot of great stuff for Amy Winehouse, she was the talent and he was the producer, and you should never forget that. And when producers start saying, actually, you know, it's kind of me, mm. and Tia Masiero was a bit inclined to but do that. Did he that. do that? That's interesting. Um, you know, it would piss someone on that Miles off. And presumably he had nothing to do with this new Miles album that we were listening to the other Rubber day. Band. Thinking, <laughs> really, this isn't terribly good. Did we, yeah. What, what, what do you feel about that? I think it's this idea of a producer claiming too much credit. It can be problematic, mm-hmm. as you say. Equally, I think sometimes people conceptualise it in disparate, as if the producer and the, the talent are separate. Yes. But a lot of the time, it's a collaborative effort. Which it was. And, it's, yeah. and it's really difficult sometimes, just in terms of credits, mm-hmm. literally on the, on the album, Steve, to, to quantify and codify <laughs> in what the end, that actually In the end, the person means. who produces the notes is the most important person. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that there is... Absolutely, uh, but, sort of... but you can understand why someone like Masiro would want to get credit for yeah. the things that he did, which is to kind of create something that could be presented out of what had been recorded. Yeah. It's not that he made it, and I can understand, as you say, why Miles would get pissed off, but... Yeah, I, ju- I just think that, you know, that Mysterio would be interviewed at the time around time of Bitches Brew almost saying, like, it's my record. Well, that's a bit rich, you know. I think. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, From Tio Mysterio to... to, to <laughs> Motley Crue! Yay! Yay! Sounds 96, Paul Elliott interviewing the whole band, basically. But it's, it's great. I mean, they are such ridiculous... The ones that were awake. The ones that were awake. Yeah. They were such ludicrous cartoons of metal. Mm. And, and actually, Elliott gives them a really hard time in this interview. So, like, Nicky Six is, isn't he? We like to drink, we like to get high, we like to fuck and we like to play rock and roll. We don't care about politics or anything. And he says, look, are you here to give a shit or what? I don't get this. These are really stupid questions. Give us something the readers want to hear. About sex, yeah, about you know, yeah. I mean, They are just such a wonderful parody, and I, I kind of like that, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> uh, Nicky Six says... We don't consider ourselves to be plodding, unintellectual rock and roll, so let's, like, drop that right here and go to more positive things. You know, it's fabulous. They get really cross with him. Paul Elliott likes his metal, but he recognises that they're kind of, you know, shower, really. The crew were really, I mean, as I recall, I remember reading a review of the first album, what was it, because I was too fast to live, too dumb to die or something, <laughs> I can't remember. But I remember Jeff Barton reviewing it, and so I think, okay, this sounds like a sort of reaction against slightly more hygienic, kind of big hair, early 80s, yeah, yeah, yeah. sunset strip method. Yeah, yeah. You know, because these guys are probably, it sounds like they're probably doing heroin, they're yeah. doing drugs, they're, they're sound fucked up. And that then did lead to a kind of spate of, led eventually to Guns and Roses. Absolutely, and, absolutely. So they were significant in that sense. Were they really any good? I, I don't even know or care. We enjoyed like, playing with yeah, that. With, with that, <laughs> that, that umlauts the other day, didn't they? Merkley Kerr. Merkley Kerr. Yeah, anyway. Merkley Kerr. There we have it, because Jasper's a fluent German speaker. There's exactly how to deal with umlauts. 
couple of years later, August 88, Adam Sweeting cooks up with salt and pepper who are playing, of all obscure places, Oklahoma. <laughs> I know this, this is slightly mind-bending. Oklahoma is definitely not one of our towns. Miss Salt, <laughs> whose real name is Cheryl, backstage for the girl rappers from Queens, New York, go out for their brief half-hour set. We're doing Little Rock, Arkansas, tomorrow, which is a small town also, and that probably won't be a big turnout either. We're just coming down here to let them know. Salt emits a raspy chuckle and drinks some Perrier to soothe the smoke. I, I'm very fond of salt and pepper. And this, so am I. I think salt and pepper are great. This is early on in their success. I mean, 87, 88 was just the, the beginning of their stuff. I remember my niece, at the age of six, stumping up and down the stairs of her parents' house singing Let's Talk About Sex at the top of her voice. <laughs> uh, very fond of them. This is a very nice piece. He obviously rather adores them because they're really straight-up girls, gals, you know. They're shop girls. They're secretaries. Yep. They, they, they represent kind of every woman, you know, in a, in, in a curious kind of way. But working in an industry, particularly the hip-hop industry, which is rife with misogyny and so on and so mm. forth, they were also incredibly gutsy and... Definitely. And, really and they were groundbreaking stuff. as well, and I think they're underappreciated for what they did yeah, in yeah. terms of bringing the subject matters that they brought yeah. from their own perspective Absolutely. rather than it being a, a product. It was, it was them, as you say, and I think a lot of the music they put out Still, still holds up, Absol- really still holds absolutely. up. Absolutely. I think they're fantastic, actually. I think they're definitely my top five hip-hop acts, if mm-hmm. I was to even get around to making that particular yeah. list. Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that make me. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Moving on to 92... Eno, always a good interview, Eno, even if this one feels like slightly fraudulent at times, yeah. interviewed by Rob Tannenbaum for details. Uh, you know, he's, he's a great one. He comes up with these splendid great one-liners, which, which, which yeah. don't necessarily mm-hmm. withstand too much analysis. He says, I'm particularly fed up with the history of rock music that says lyrics are the most important aspect. I don't think they make any difference at all. Which is something I would agree with him about. The discussion we've had, we've I think. Had this one. Then he says, my work used to be the centre of everything I bought about. Apart from sex, which is another big centre, still is. Well, of course, he's the notorious coxman, I believe. Is well, it, it, you know, given how cerebral and <laughs> it is, it always, it's always slightly surprising to learn this. I remember talking to the late David Enthoven mm. of EG Records, yeah, yeah, yeah. who they, they managed Roxy, and I remember him saying to me, oh, you know, you know he just, he was insatiable. He, he just fucked like a rabbit. Yeah. Sorry if you're listening, Brian. <laughs> yeah. um, no, although you may be pleased. Of course he's pleased. We've got that fantastic Chrissy Hind interview with him for NME, which she <laughs> implies... He's trying it on with her. Well, it basically implies it turns into an S&M sex session. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, escalated quickly. <laughs> it, it, I, it is brilliant, you know. I, I mean, also in this interview, he talks about producing U2 and says, well, you know, I managed to bring something to U2 that was never... But I also made a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah. He is someone who's definitely it. had his cake and eaten it. And shagged it. And then and eaten shagged it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and then had an S&M session with it. <laughs> Whip, with a piece of cake. Whipped cream. Whipped cream, yeah. 
Is this going to make the cut, Jasper? Yes. Right. What have you got? Are you two gentlemen? Oh, us two gentlemen. Well, I will hand over to Jasper and just to say, there's just a couple of things I I will allude to. There's a piece by the late Robert Sandel on the emerging Montreal scene, which is interesting because actually Arcade Fire haven't even really broken. They get a mention, but no more than that. They're like a sort of rising stars (coughs) of that scene. So that's from 2004. There's a piece about bassists and we all like bass guitars don't we so james med wrote an in-depth piece about the importance of the bass guitarist for the word in 2012 which i really enjoyed he talks to a bunch of people including tina weymouth just really emphasizing the importance of the kind of the unsung hero that is that is the bass guitar player. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. Well, he doesn't mention Rick Danko, which I oh, think well, is a hanging of does, does, does he talk about the R&B bass players? He talk, he's talking more about bass players in bands. In so bands. it's less about the James Jamesons and, yeah. and Duck Dunn. Because, I mean, those of us, and that includes all three of us, who absolutely love different versions and varieties of R&B, bass is bass the is it. It's absolutely. Absolutely. You brilliant. know, uh, the, the, almost everything that happens in a track is generated by the bass guitar. Yeah. James Jameson, who's just a huge hero of mine, starts off Motown playing a double bass, an upright bass, and he moves on to an electric mm-hmm. bass, and he invents R&B bass. One man invents mm-hmm. R&B bass. Mm-hmm. And, and out of that... I mean, in a similar way, Jimmy Blanton invented jazz yeah. bass in the, in the 40s. Absolutely. You know, you made, know made it a big part of yeah. what... And had a band leader, Ellington, who noticed that this guy was doing stuff which was really special and interesting. Yep. I love bass. I love bass guitar. I love mm. bass playing. It's, it's absolutely... It can make my hair stand up on the back of my neck. Yeah. So, Jasper, over to you, sir. I've got a couple of pieces, first of which is... The Roots, but with Ornette Coleman at Meltdown Festival at the Royal Festival Hall in London in 2009. And it was Ornette's... He curated Meltdown. He was the curator of that Meltdown. I actually was lucky enough to once see Ornette in Essen in Germany. That was a great gig. But this is an interesting one because, obviously, The Roots are a sort of Mm hip-hop instrumental band. And then Mm. Ornette joins them for a couple tunes. And John Lewis writes... He might look like a baffled grandfather at a disco, but any hint of frailty disappeared when he picked up his plastic alto and joined in. His blues-drenched tone was instantly identifiable and his lengthy solo unfolded into something compellingly haunting. Suitably spooked, the roots returned for an electrifying encore, as if they'd been frightened out of their skins. Fantastic. I wish I'd seen that. Yeah, I, I would have been incredible, I think, to see. And I think also the roots had a great deal of respect for it. I think they'd worked together previously yeah. as well and that's why he sort of invited them on for this also the roots festival gig. individuals are absolutely imbued in the history of black music yeah, absolutely. you know um, i mean they're, they're bright interesting clever guys they know their stuff they've done a lot of like bessie wright's best album for years was done with them not too long ago you know i, I have a lot of time for them i, I really do <laughs> Ted 
Tame Impala's danceable new album, Currents, track by track, first listen review, John Calvert in That's the NME. That's a mouthful of a headline. Absolutely. <laughs> 2015, John Calvert. And this is actually our first, very first Tame Impala piece in the Shame archive. Shame on us. Yeah. Shame on us, but I did this. And it's not of the album I think is most interesting of theirs, mm. which is Lonerism, oh, which, was, which was a great album that came out in 2012. This mm. is their album after that, three years later. And I think that Tame Impala's frontman was concerned that he'd never seen anyone dance to their music. So he wanted to make a, a danceable record. And I don't know if he succeeded. Oh, it's a track-by-track track review just goes through and does refer back to lonerism. One reality in motion, we're back in lonerism territory with the Aussie simply unable to resist the super-layered, fuzzed-out aesthetics of his beloved 1960s. But where on lonerism, Parker mostly channeled the delicate Lennon-esque blues end of the period, reality in motion is the decade as flamboyant freak parade. So they're not a revivalist band as such, but they do take a lot of influences from the 60s. They're a sort of psych, Aussie psych, mm-hmm. basically, is what they do. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad you... I, lonerism is actually one of my like favorite records of the last 10 years there aren't many albums that i would say are kind of up there with the great canonical rock albums of the past i think that's one of them and i do think they sort of blend this, this sort of revivalist neo-psychedelic element with something that, that that's genuinely his there's a character to his musical persona which i think is really compelling yeah, um but i but i haven't been too thrilled by anything since then and i saw i saw them at glasto on tv and i just didn't think it worked terribly well mm. but i still think he is a major major talent Christine and the Queens, A New French Revolution. Lisa Verico interviews her for the Times, Eloise Letissier. And she's very interesting. (laughs) Uh, She's very, very interesting. Very interesting character. Obviously now she's sort of exploring an alter ego, Chris. This is when it's Christine and the Queens. And she says, I chose to work with people who wouldn't mess with what I wanted to do artistically. When I said, no, I'm not wearing that dress or refused to put on lipstick, they supported me. When I said I wanted to be a genderless energy, they let me get on with it. And I think that kind of alludes to what's being explored now with the Chris persona. And she's very clearly always been herself in what she does. And she's funny as well because she says, that has nothing to do with being French. I'm not trying to be an exotic French pop person. I don't want anyone to say, oh, that's so cute, she's French. Mm. I want the songs to resonate. I want to get my message across. I want to be a voice in pop that's about who I am and what I have to say, not where I'm from. And I think... She does do that. I mean, she is very good and she's funny and witty and clever about how she goes about presenting the various personas Mm. that she adopts for her music. So I think it's, you know, it is interesting, but one of those classic things where the British press can't quite let go of this idea of like, oh, look, it's the the funny French French person coming over Mm. and doing their sort of quirky French thing. Mm -mm. I think she would be a really fascinating person, even if... Her music wasn't great. Yeah. And it is. And it is great. The it, truth it is, really the music is. really is good. I think good. she's a fabulous pop star. And I, I love, not every track, but I love the records she's made. Um, she's just got genuine musical talent. Uh, and I mean, I think I understand she puts these tracks together pretty in a quite a kind of simple way. Yeah, doesn't she? I mean, I think she, like there was some controversy. Beats and yeah, the controversy yeah. because so she what? used some loops from a logic. Pro pack, you know, like that, that she just constructed a track based on loops. But who cares? I mean, it sounds great. It sounds good. 
and she's obviously adding to it by you know singing over it and making it hers and you know writing the song is you know i mean loops are not a song you know you can use them to I write mean, a song put and it that's this what way, she does Sly and the family stone used a preset drum machine <laughs> You know, I mean, a preset. Or only had or, one preset. Which only had like rhythm two on it, yeah. Samba and something <laughs> yeah. else. You yeah. know, who cares? Yeah. I mean, it still really, sounds incredible. Who, who cares? I mean, you know, I know mm. people. My niece made a really good record on Garage Band, which was riddled with stuff which came with Garage Band. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's how you use the stuff. Course, it's the yes. context you put it in. Have you seen, Christy? You've seen that. No, I've not. I, I would really great. like to. Yeah. I'd yeah. really like to, but it's a bit difficult. It's really big now. It's kind of difficult to get down. I know Paul really was talking now. about resale tickets being up in the £300 range. So, you know, but she's great. And I'd also, it'd be a miserable experience because you'd be in a crowd full of people just talking amongst themselves the whole time. <laughs> oh, Mark. He'd probably be talking himself. No, I would not. What's the next one? (laughs) (laughs) The next one and the last one is a piece I did from The Wire. Michael A. Gonzalez reviewing Common's album Black America again, which was released at the end of 2016, so recording around the time when, of course, Trump is getting elected and all of that stuff is happening. Mm. And Common, who at that point was already a sort of successful Hollywood actor, doesn't really need to be doing music anymore, has sort of made it, basically, mm-hmm. but decides he's got something to say, records this album. We listened to it the other day. Mm. and sounded great. It's, it's really, really good. And Michael A. Gonzalez writes very nicely, building a strong, soulful foundation for his skyscraper of words, the rapper channels everyone from Malcolm X to James Brown into a mountainous manifesto of beautiful blackness that is reflective of the struggle for dignity and equality while also working towards the banishment of stereotypes. Excellent. I mean, I'm a big Michael Gonzalez fan as a writer. I think he's, he's great. a yeah, he's really stylist. Good. He's also, you know... Whilst he's naturally Afrocentric, he's also aware of a much broader context in which music's made and so on and so forth. I think it's a shame that people like he struggle to actually earn a living these days as writers. You know, this guy, people should be just climbing over themselves to th- throw money at them, you know. Can we listen to that common thing in, yeah. the, in the office sometime today? We'll do it I mean, again, yeah. It's, it's I, I, I very much like this. What's that name? Common. Common. Yeah. Commoner's Mark. <laughs> <laughs> which, which he isn't. But, no. um... <laughs> Uncommon. Here, here we go again. Trayvon will never get to be an older man. Black children, they childhood stole from them. Robbed of our names and our language. Stole again. Who stole the soul from black folk? Same man that stole the lamp from cheap black smoke and made the whip crackle on our back. Slow made us go through the back door and raffle black bodies on the slave block. Is that, that's, that's your it. lot? That wraps it, it up. Well, that does So we have, we have the snowman next week, do we? We have Matt Snow coming in. To talk about the uh, you know 100th anniversary of Abbey Road, the Beatles, one of the Beatles' greatest albums. Yeah, um, well, I, you know, I think it was a very good swan song after yeah, an, yeah. after a dodgy stretch. Yeah, so we'll have some fun with Matt, and we'll look forward to who will come through the bathroom window. He will come through just to confirm. <laughs> yes, yeah. missed that um, hilarious joke the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Matt was part of the very, very early stages of Rock Pages too, so it'll be really nice to reminisce about he, that. He so join us, please, next week. Yeah. But we will bow out, as ever, with Ellipsis. <laughs> with Madonna talking about what it's like to be criticised as an actress. Oh. Oh. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening. Till next week. Bye. 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 
do you think that people jump to conclusions when you're in, when you're in film that, that they get discounted because, because they should because it's you yeah I mean I guess so I mean I think people have been unusually harsh and critical of me in films um, and in retrospect I would I would say that some of the movies that people have really slagged me off in have been crap films mm -hmm. and some of them I've quite liked them so I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and not like something because everyone else doesn't like it mm -hmm. but um, and sometimes people are right but still to criticize a film is one thing I find that what people generally do is criticize me mm -hmm. personally and then I realize that it's kind of more of a personal vendetta thing or something I'm not I'm not really sure well there is um, this I'm usually exuberant criticism yeah, you might say, yeah. yeah. That was Madonna in conversation with Stephen Daly in 2002, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.